0: Hello and welcome to the latest episode in our series of commercial litigation update podcasts. I'm Maura McIntosh and I'm a professional support consultant in the disputes team in London and today I'm joined by Ajay Malhotra who's a partner specialising in financial services litigation and investigations. Hello everyone. And also by Richard Mendoza who's a senior associate specialising in director and officer or other corporate governance related disputes. Hello. In this edition, I'm going to look at developments relating to litigation funding since the Supreme Court's dramatic decision in Packer in late July that I spoke about in our last podcast. And I'll also touch briefly on developments relating to ADR pre action conduct and costs. Ajay will then outline some recent developments relating to Russian sanctioned parties. And finally, Richard will tell us about the abrupt end to the disqualification proceedings brought against former non executive directors of Carillion, where the case was dropped recently on the eve of trial. Richard was part of the team leading the non-executive director's defence to those proceedings, so he's particularly well-placed to tell us about the case and its implications. So starting then with litigation funding, as listeners will be aware, in Packer, the Supreme Court held to the surprise of many of us that agreements which provide for the funder to be paid a share of damages recovered by the claimant, as is typical for those sorts of uh, agreements, are damages-based agreements or DBAs, and so they have to comply with the regulatory regime that applies to DBAs in order to be enforceable. Now, since funders didn't think their agreements were DBAs, they hadn't made any attempt to comply with that regime, and so the upshot of the Supreme Court's decision was that most, if not all, litigation funding agreements in the UK that were in place at the time of the Supreme Court decision are likely to be unenforceable. Since the decision, we understand that funders have been busy trying to renegotiate funding agreements in ongoing matters to try to get around the decision, either by trying to ensure that the agreement falls outside the definition of a DBA, which is the only viable option for opt-out competition claims in the Competition Appeal Tribunal since DBAs are prohibited in that context, or by accepting that the agreement is a DBA and trying to ensure it complies with the relevant regulations. Now, there's some debate as to what's needed to achieve either of those aims, either avoiding being a DBA or complying with the regulations. Packer didn't address those questions since it was common ground in that case that the funding agreement was not compliant if it was a DBA, as of course the court held. Now, there has been a hearing on an amended funding agreement in one case in the Competition Appeal Tribunal, and I understand another hearing is coming up very soon. And in a further case, the CAT has very recently certified a case to proceed on a provisional basis pending submissions on the funding arrangements. So there are lots of cases where this is a live issue. In the case I mentioned where there's been a hearing on the funding issue, A key question is whether moving to an agreement where the funder is paid a multiple of the funding committed rather than taking a share of the damages will avoid the agreement being a DBA and we'll have to wait and see what the cat decides on that. If the cat finds that that is not a DBA, then it seems likely that funders will adopt the multiple approach in opt out cases, at least out of thought. Um, Outside that context, as I said The other option is to make sure the funding agreement complies with the DBA regulations, which probably means ensuring the funder can never receive more than 50% of the damages, including VAT, rather than also having what was typically agreed previously, which was an underpinning multiple of the funding committed that kicks in to protect the funder if damages are lower than anticipated. That probably isn't possible under the DBA regulations. Now, interestingly, the decision in PACAR is starting to give rise to disputes between claimants and funders in concluded cases, uh, including a dispute between Bugsby property and its funder, Therium, where Bugsby denies owing Ethereum any share of its damages on the basis that the funding agreement is unenforceable in light of PACAR. Uh, there was a recent decision in that case in which the High Court held that Ethereum may be able to enforce its entitlement to be paid a multiple of funding committed under the agreement, even though it was accepted that the agreement was unenforceable to the extent that it provided for payment of a percentage share of damages. Now, I should emphasise that the court decided only that there was a serious issue to be tried, not that the agreement for payment of a multiple could be enforced, but it's certainly an interesting area to watch. Unfortunately, in that case, the substantive question will be determined by arbitrators as there was an arbitration agreement in the funding agreement. So it's unlikely to become public but I expect it's only a matter of time before these issues are tested in the courts. In terms of the other developments I wanted to mention, just briefly, first, the government has announced plans to introduce compulsory mediation as a mandatory step in all small claims in the county court. So currently that's cases under 10,000 pounds, but the government also aims to integrate a mediation step into higher value cases in the county court. So I think it's just an interesting um, development as the way things are moving. Secondly, and relatedly, in August, a Civil Justice Council working group issued a report recommending substantial changes to increase the role of pre-action protocols. And most controversially, the proposals include an express obligation to undertake a pre-action mediation or some other pre-action dispute resolution process with the default requirement being an inter-party meeting if no other sort of process is agreed. Now that ties in with the county court mandatory mediation proposals I mentioned in that if the process chosen involves a third party neutral but not if for example it's just an inter-party meeting then that will satisfy the county court mediation requirement. I should also say that the working group recognised concerns that its proposals for pre-action protocols may be too inflexible for complex commercial cases in the business and property courts. And so it's going to consider in the second phase of its review whether a more flexible bespoke protocol should be created for those sorts of cases. Then finally, for me, on 1st of October, the new rules for fixed recoverable costs took effect for less complex claims of up to £100,000, which are allocated to a new intermediate track, as it's called. Now, that's pretty dramatic de- development for claims at that level, and we'll have to wait and see whether it starts to creep upwards to higher value cases, though I think we're a very long way from any sort of fixed costs regime for complex commercial cases. So that's all I wanted to cover. Um, Ajay, I think you're going to tell us about developments relating to Russian-sanctioned parties, starting with the Mintz and PJSC National Bank Trust case?
1: I am, yes. Um, So this is a Court of Appeal decision, which is very topical, as it's confirmed that UK sanctions do not preclude the court from entering judgment in favour of Russian-sanctioned parties. Just to give you a bit of background... The appeal rose in ongoing proceedings brought by two Russian banks, MBT and Bank Okritie, in respect of an alleged conspiracy. The banks obtained a freezing injunction in support of the proceedings. While the proceedings were still ongoing, Russia invaded Ukraine and Bank Okritie was made a designated person for the purposes of the UK asset freezing measures against Russian entities. But importantly, NBT, the other claimant bank, is not a designated person, and neither is the Central Bank of Russia, which owns 99% of NBT. Following the invasion and the imposition of sanctions, the defendants sought an order to stay the proceedings, arguing that the UK asset freeze restrictions extended to NBT as well as to Bank of Critier, and the imposition of sanctions precluded judgment being entered for either of them. But the Court of Appeal found that even if the sanctions regime applied to both claimants, that didn't preclude the court entering judgment in their favour. The question turned on the principle of legality, a principle of statutory interpretation which provides that fundamental common law rights can only be curtailed if that is clearly authorised by primary legislation, either expressly or in clear and unambiguous implicit terms. Applying the principle of legality, the court found that the relevant Russian sanctions regulations do not amount to a clear and unambiguous prohibition on the court entering judgment in favor of sanctioned parties. There was also an argument that even if the court could enter judgment for the claimants, the proceedings shouldn't be allowed to continue because the defendants wouldn't be able to obtain or enforce adverse costs orders or security for costs, or an order for damages under the cross undertaking in connection with the freezing injunction. So essentially, it would be unfair on the defendants because they would be prejudiced in those ways. But the court rejected that too, on the basis of its findings that the Office of Financial Sanctions Implementation or OFSI, is entitled to license a sanctioned party to pay an adverse cost order, security for costs, or damages on a cross undertaking in damages. Or indeed to license a payment of cost order in favour of a sanctioned party. So as a result there was no unfairness.
0: Thanks, Um, that's all interesting. I, I guess the point didn't matter because the court found that a stay wasn't justified even if both claimants were affected by sanctions. But what was the basis for the submission that NBT was subject to the sanctions regime, since you said it it wasn't itself a designated person and nor was its 99% owner?
1: Yeah, that's actually one of the most interesting and surprising aspects of the judgment. So under the UK sanctions regime, an entity will be subject to sanctions if it is owned or controlled by a designated person. Contrary to the High Court's finding, the Court of Appeal concluded that there was no carve out to the ownership and control test for control exercised through political office. On that basis, given that MBT is 99 percent owned by the Central Bank of Russia, which is which is run by Ms. Navalina, um, who is a designated person, um, who ultimately reports to Vladimir Putin, who, of course, is also a designated person. Um, it was found that NBT could be seen to be under the ownership or control of a designated person. The Court of Appeal went further and found that on this basis, since Russia is a command economy, with Vladimir Putin at its apex, it could be said that Mr Putin, who is of course a designated person, may be deemed to control, as the judge put it, everything, In Russia for the purposes of the regulations.
0: That sounds pretty uh, dramatic. Uh, Does it mean that any Russian company could be subject to sanctions just because the Russian economy is ultimately controlled by Mr. Putin? I can see why
1: that might be the implication, but I don't think personally that it will go that far. Those comments were obiter, so they're not binding. And in an effort to resolve some of the uncertainty, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office published a statement shortly after the decision was released, which said that it is carefully considering the impact of the decision. The statement said that the FCDO would look to designate a public body where possible when designating a public official, if it concluded that the relevant official was exercising control over the public body, and further, that there is no presumption on the part of the UK government that a private entity based in or incorporated in Russia or any jurisdiction where a public official is designated is in itself sufficient evidence to demonstrate that the relevant official exercises control over that entity. So that's some comfort, though the FCDO's statement doesn't have any real legal status. So a more formal legislative clarification, which is what the Court of Appeals judgment envisaged, would be preferable.
0: Thanks. Yes, I I can see that. I think you also want to tell us about an issue that's come up in a few recent cases as to whether the English courts can grant anti-suit injunctions restraining parties from bringing court proceedings in breach of an arbitration clause where England is not the chosen seat of arbitration. Uh, And I know these cases also had a, a Russian connection. Yes,
1: that's right. Lots of um, litigation coming out of uh, Russian related issues. Um, This point has arisen in three recent cases, so this trilogy, and in each it was a Russian party bringing proceedings in Russia in breach of an agreement for arbitration seated in Paris. That's not quite as much of a coincidence as it might sound. Anti-suit injunctions have become particularly important in respect of Russian parties because of a Russian law which allows the Russian courts to take exclusive jurisdiction over cases which involve sanctions. So it's very interesting that in two of these cases, one of which was a court of appeal decision, the courts have granted anti-suit injunctions despite the seat of the arbitration being in Paris. In a third similar case, the high court refused to grant an injunction, but it's worth noting that in that case, unlike the cases where the injunction was granted, the arbitration agreement was found to be governed by French law rather than English law. So while the cases demonstrate that an anti-suit injunction can be granted for breach of an arbitration agreement, even where there is a foreign seat, the court will always need to be satisfied that England is the proper forum for granting the relief.
0: Thanks, Pajee. So finally, Richard, uh, over to you to tell us about Carillion. Uh, I expect it was welcome news both to you and the clients when the proceedings were dropped effectively on the eve of trial.
2: Thanks, Laura. Yes, it was quite a sudden turn of events given that the trial was intended to commence on the 16th of October and we'd been listed for a 13-week hearing. Um, The decision to drop the case came very late on but was obviously very welcome news for the clients and in our view Um, this country's corporate governance regime more generally.
0: Yes, before you go into that, maybe you could provide a bit of a recap on who Carillion were and what the proceedings were all about.
2: Yes, certainly. Um, So, until it went into compulsory liquidation in January 2018, the Carillion Group operated a leading construction, project, finance and support services business in the UK, um, and also across a number of other jurisdictions. Um, It it had over 350 operating subsidiaries, and the PLC itself was the ultimate listed parent company of the group. Um, And we were acting for uh, the non-executives of that listed parent company. Um, the, The group was involved in around 450 public sector projects, including hospitals, schools, prisons and transport. So when it went into insolvency in 2018, there was significant media and political interest, given the number of jobs affected um, and implications for ongoing public projects and services where Carillion had been involved. There followed a number of different but interrelated proceedings and investigations um, after that insolvency, including an investigation by the official receiver um, into the conduct of the directors of the PLC. And in 2020, um, that investigation culminated in a recommendation to the Secretary of State for for base, as it was then, it's now um, business and trade, um, that there was sufficient evidence to justify the Secretary of State commencing disqualification proceedings against three former executives and five former non-executives of the PLC. And in January 2021, the Secretary of State did just that. Now, the test which the legislation requires the Secretary of State to establish for disqualification is that each individual is unfit to be involved in the management of any company. And that is a very high threshold. Um, It is substantially higher than the standard for mere negligence um, and requires either a want of probity or really gross incompetence to be established.
0: So, what was the Secretary of State alleging that the Directors had done to meet that threshold and justify disqualification? Well,
2: the Secretary of State's case against the Executives was different to her case against the NET. Um, however, both had at their core an allegation that the Carillion Group's accounts had been fraudulently misstated in the years immediately preceding the insolvency. And the case against two of the executives, this was the former finance directors, was essentially that they knowingly caused Carillion, one, to publish misleading accounts in respect of five specific construction contracts and two other um, outsourcing-related transactions, uh, two, to publish related misleading announcements, uh, misleading because um, the announcements were, were uh, overly optimistic, given the actual true nature of the the, the financial position of the company. Um, and three, uh, to pay a dividend which could not be justified, based on the company's true financial position. It was accepted that the third executive, the former CEO, did not do any of these things knowingly or dishonestly, uh, but nevertheless that he ought to have known of the alleged fraudulent conduct within the business. Now as matters transpired between June and early October this year, the three executives um, each gave disqualif- disqualification undertakings uh, in which they essentially agreed not to be concerned in the management of a company for 12.5, 11 and eight years respectively. Um, so n- and none of those undertakings involved any admissions as to the alleged fraud, um, but that ultimately ended the proceedings against them.
0: So that was the executive directors. What about the the Neds who, I understand, we represented?
2: Yeah, so exactly. As you say, our our role on the case concerned defending the Neds, not the executives, and the case against them was different. It was said that during the relevant period, each of them was in breach of a strict duty to know the true financial position of Carillion at all times, the so-called NED duty, as it became known in the proceedings. Seemingly acknowledging how novel this was, the Secretary of State described this at a case management hearing as a test case. She essentially said that the directors have a duty which stems from a 1998 case of re-Westmid and survived um, the codification of directors' duties in the Companies Act 2006, and that this duty required the directors to know the true financial position of Carillion, and and by not so knowing, they were, without anything more, um, in breach of that duty. Now, as those listening may know, section 174 of the Companies Act requires directors to act with reasonable care, skill and diligence. However, the Secretary of State said that reasonableness was irrelevant to the discharge of the NED duty. She also said that the NED's reliance on Koreans' executive management and experienced and expert advisors was irrelevant to the discharge of the NED duty, regardless of whether that reliance was reasonable.
0: So, what was the NED's response to all of that? Well,
2: our first point was that the Secretary of State's reliance on Westmid uh, as uh, as a, as an authority for the NED duty was er- erroneous. And that judgment, we said, was it was not in fact authority for the existence of a NED duty. It was a case concerning disqualification periods, not the duties. Uh, of Directors um, in themselves, and the the comment the the Secretary of State relied on was actually made only in passing. As such, we said that the case against the NEDs was permeated by a fundamental misunderstanding of the law on Directors' Duties, uh, as well as the role of a non-Executive Director. As we explained, first, a strict duty to know would be inconsistent with and would contradict the statutory codification of director's duties, particularly section 174, which uh, requires uh, acting with reasonable uh, care skill and diligence. Second, such a duty would be fundamentally impractical and impossible to comply with, particularly for those appointed to large and complex companies. It would require an almost omniscience extending to every aspect of a company's business, not just the financials but every other aspect or activity that the company is involved in. Third, it would contradict the understanding and expectations of those serving on boards and those advising them. Not only is it an inappropriate standard for executive directors, but the requirement of a strict duty to know is even more obviously incompatible with the concept of non-executive directorship, where the expectations are fundamentally different to that of an executive director. If it were to be imposed, one suspects it would seriously impact the willingness of individuals to act as non-executive directors of UK companies. So in the end, the Secretary of State has abandoned her case, which will come as a welcome relief for all company directors. As I say, if if the case on the net duty had succeeded, uh, it would have had serious and immediate consequences for corporate governance practice in the UK. But thankfully, we are left with the position as we'd previously understood it. Namely, there is no strict duty to know. Rather, directors owe a duty to act with reasonable care, skill and diligence as regards the affairs of their company, including its financial affairs, but also, as I say, all other activities. And they are entitled to place reliance on executive management and experts advisors where there is no reason to doubt their competence or integrity.
0: Thank you, Richard. Uh, And also thanks to Ajay and to all of you for listening. So that brings us to the end of today's podcast and we'll be back with another update in a couple of months.